As a church, we are walking through the first three chapters of John this fall, and today we come to the second half of chapter two. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at the first half of John chapter two, verses one through 12, where John recounted for us that story, that famous miracle of Jesus where he changed the water into wine. And if you were with us last week or caught up online, you'll know that Jesus was pointing to something much deeper than just wine. Jesus was pointing to himself as the new wine. And he was pointing ahead to the cross when Jesus would pour himself out like wine with grace upon grace. So that was last week in John 2, 1 through 12. And now this week, John takes us on something of a detour. John interrupts the story today to insert a scene here that actually occurs much later in Jesus's life and ministry. This happens often in books that we read or TV shows or movies, and there's a formal word for it. It's a prolepsis, a modern phrase that you may use sometimes thrown around is a flash forward And this happens when the director, or this morning in our case, the author, John, decides to take a point from the future and insert it and introduce it earlier in the story because it's that significant to understanding the story. In some way, it helps frame the story. So, so far, here's where we've been with Jesus, a few different locations through these first two chapters. First, we were with Jesus in the beginning before creation, and then at creation, and then Jesus' incarnation. Then in Bethany, we were with Jesus. And then in Galilee. Last week, we were in Cana. And then in verse 12, John told us last week that after the wedding, Jesus and his mother and disciples went to Capernaum. So now suddenly, for some reason, the director cuts to a new scene. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, And it's the last week of his life. The other three Gospels have this story towards the end, when it happens in Jesus' life. But John takes us there now in chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He writes, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So what happens here and what happens next is critical to understanding Jesus. And that's why John flashes forward. John wants what happened in the temple that day towards the end of Jesus's life to stay in the forefront of our minds for the rest of the gospel of John. When we next week encounter Nicodemus in chapter 3, or when we encounter the woman in Samaria in chapter 4, or the paralyzed man in chapter 5, and, and so on. This scene in the temple is to shed light on all the scenes to come. And here's why this scene is so essential, why what happened in the temple that day with Jesus is so essential, because it's critical to our understanding of Jesus and our life in him, to not only see him as fulfiller, 
but to live in him as the one who is our fulfillment. This is the constant invitation of the gospel according to John. Look, yes, but live in also. Remember the end of the gospel of John. John gives away why he wrote this gospel, that you might believe in him and that by believing you will have life in his name. So that's why John inserts this story here this morning that we would see Jesus not only as the one who accomplishes things, yes, see him as that, but also live in him as the one who is our accomplishment. Look at what Jesus did, but don't stop there. Too many of us never get beyond looking at Jesus, being impressed by Jesus. But it's not that being impressed by him is bad. It's just that it's incomplete. It would be equivalent to you standing in the parking lot this morning and looking at the sanctuary and admiring the architecture and the brick and the steeple and the glass and the colonial Virginia architecture, but not coming into the sanctuary. The invitation is for you to come in. The door is open. And that's the constant invitation of John in this gospel, that you would see Jesus, admire him, behold him, worship him, but come into life in Christ. Jesus is the fulfiller, the one to whom we look, and he's our fulfillment, the one in whom we live. So John, John is saying to us again and again and again, you can look at Christ, yes, but you can also live in Christ. And if you're going to live in Christ, then watch out, because Christ is going to live in you. And if Christ is going to live in you, he's going to set you apart for himself. And so if you're going to live in Christ, and if Christ is going to live in you, and if Christ by his Holy Spirit is going to set you apart as a temple for him, then you might want to pay attention to the story of Jesus in the temple. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this story of Jesus in the temple. And let's look at it this morning like the two-sided coin that it is. The first side of the coin shows us Jesus, the fulfiller. Again, the one to whom we look. John's saying, look at this man and see what he does. So verses 13 and 14, we've already looked at, told us that Jesus came into the temple. He saw people selling animals to be used for sacrifice and the money changers there. And here's where we see the first thing that Jesus does. Number one, Jesus delivers God's wrath. Jesus delivers God's wrath. Now, having said that, let me first say this that Jesus doesn't get angry like you and I do. Jesus doesn't lose his temper like you and I do. Jesus is God. And so on that note of Jesus being God, let me just say this now, that Jesus is not, as some people think, and as you may hear once in a while in popular culture, Jesus is not some kind of kinder, gentler version of the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is not sort of, you know, God 2.0, a softer, more refined approach to things. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and then we get to the New Testament, and all of a sudden, he's a God of, of mercy. 
Not at all. There is one God of the Bible, and Jesus is God. John has established that. Jesus is God, one God of the Bible, and here in the temple is that God incarnate. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of tenderness, and he is a God of justice. God is not 60% one thing and 40% another thing. God is always 100% God. And there's a name for this, by the way. There's a name for this doctrine, in case you're interested. And it's actually called divine simplicity. That's what it's called. God is God. He's not made up of, of different parts. And so mystery of mysteries then is that this God who is 100% God in Christ is also 100% man. And so here in the temple is the God-man about to unleash God's righteous wrath. Verse 15, making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple. Just imagine this scene with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So a little background here might be helpful for all of us. For Passover, Jews would come from Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple, and Jews would come from all over the world to offer sacrifices in the temple. And it was convenient then to come into the temple and purchase animals right there for sacrifice. But in order to purchase the animals, you could only use temple coins because any other coin with the face of another world ruler on it would be considered blasphemous. And so you had to exchange your money in order to pay for the sacrifice. And what do you know? There were money changers ready to help you, but for a price, with a hefty fee. And then those in power who extorted people in order to pay for a sacrifice would line their pockets and get rich. So the temple of God had become a retail store. Imagine if our pews were removed and you came into church one Sunday and if, if, if you wanted to sing a song, you had to slip me five bucks. Or if you wanted us to not sing a particular song, you'd slip me 20 bucks. It had become a retail operation. There was a merchandise filling the, the space that was for worship and there were dishonest money changers flagrantly stealing people's money right under God's nose. And so Jesus comes and he delivers God's wrath upon all of this. He has eyes to see the, the temple's desecration. He has a nose to smell their empty sacrifices. Remember from the very beginning of time, what's God after in these sacrifices? It's the people's heart. There's no heart in this. There's just money exchanging hands. It's empty. And so Jesus finally comes into all this mess and with a voice of thunder, imagine the sound of the voice of God in that temple that day. He says, enough. 
Zeal for his father's house had consumed him. So what exactly provokes his wrath here? It's worth just looking at very briefly. I can think of a few things. You could probably think of more as well. What provokes God's wrath here? First, the desecration of his temple. Next, the perversion of his worship. The exploitation of his people. And perhaps worst of all, the complicity of those in power. And Jesus' wrath here is most pointedly reserved for those who were perpetrating this. Right under God's nose, his temple was being defiled. Honest seekers were being kept out of his presence. And at a minimum, by my count, the first three commandments were being broken. Flagrantly. Their God was their wallet. They had made an idol out of profit. And they did it all supposedly in the name of the Lord. So in modern terms, these were the preachers who wanted their private jets. These were the prosperity gospel charlatans who wanted you to sow your seed into their bank account so they can build a bigger house and buy a nicer suit. These are the priests and the pastors and the lawyers and the politicians who have somehow forgotten that Micah 6, 8 is in the Bible. And the author John tells us, before you see this man perform any more miracles, before you see him open the eyes of the blind and raise the the dead, keep this in mind. Jesus came to deliver God's wrath so he could deliver God's people. Jesus is not only going to heal the sick, he is going to deliver God's wrath upon sickness. That's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is not only going to raise the dead, he's going to deliver God's wrath upon death. And Jesus is not only going to free the demoniac, he's going to deliver God's wrath upon the demons. Keep this in your mind, John is saying, as you go through the rest of this story. All week long, as I've read this, I've thought of that classic scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan asks Mr. Beaver about this mighty great lion she keeps hearing about, Aslan, Aslan. And she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And Jesus came as a lion, let loose in the temple that day to deliver God's wrath. Now, Jesus also came as our fulfiller to do away with the old. Look with me at verse 18. The Jews say to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things, Jesus? Or in the New Living Translation, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Jesus answered them, verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they take him literally. Jesus is speaking figuratively, calling for the destruction of the temple. He's saying that this whole 
system had run its course. And the one to whom it all pointed, the one to whom every little sacrifice with a lowercase s pointed was in their midst. And Jesus had come to bring about not only its end, but its fulfillment. Before Jesus could go to the cross and make a way for you to come to him by his blood, before Jesus could pour himself out as the new wine, he had to first do away with the old wine. You've hopefully heard this verse before from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Maybe your Bible memory uh, first challenges when you were a kid. You'll still know this. I hope you do. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise God. Well, here in John chapter 2, and again, throughout the gospel, what we see is the passing away of the old. Jesus is actively making it pass away. That's what he's doing. It gives some perspective to what Jesus is up to. He's not just going into towns at random, healing the sick at random, responding to situations at random. Jesus has got an agenda, and his agenda is to put away the old. Side note, still one of his agendas. Put away the old. So Jesus makes a scene here. He purposefully causes a scene in order to make a point. And his first point is the first side of the coin that John is highlighting here. Jesus is the fulfiller. Look at him. He came to deliver God's wrath and he came to do away with the old, to make it pass away. Jesus is saying all these inferior substitutes need a superior substitute, Christ himself. So now let's look at the other side of the coin here that John wants us to see. Jesus, our fulfillment, the one in whom we have life, the invitation to come into the sanctuary of Christ. So yes, Jesus came to deliver God's wrath. He did. But he also came to bear God's wrath. He came to bear it. He didn't just come to dole it out to take it, to bear upon and within his body the full righteous wrath of God upon evil, upon the evil that had desecrated his temple, upon the evil that had perverted his worship, and upon the evil that had exploited his people, and, mind you, upon the evil in which every human heart is complicit. All of that evil demanded the punishment of God, and Jesus came to bear it for us. This was his purpose. It's his purpose as the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sins of the world. Remember, Jesus is victor over evil. He's also the victim of evil for us. This was Jesus' purpose as the Son of God. Yes, the Son to rule and reign, but also the Son to suffer and die. So Jesus came into the temple that day to deliver God's wrath, but also to make it clear he had come to bear that wrath. Verse 20, the Jews then said, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus points to himself and willingly, sacrificially says, world, destroy me. My sign that I am who I say I am is that you will destroy me, you will nail me to a cross, I will bear destruction, and I will rise again. And John tells us this in verse 22. When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, how does this fact that Jesus bore God's wrath mean that you can have life in the sanctuary of Christ and come more fully alive in him? Well, for one, because it's the bedrock of the promise for the believer in Romans 8, verse 1. Hear this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how is that possible? How is that guaranteed for you and me? It's possible and it's guaranteed because Jesus took the condemnation and he nailed it to the cross and he left it in the grave. The fact, the truth that Jesus bore God's wrath means, hear me, that you are free from ever bearing it yourself, ever. Some of you this morning, are not sure that you're totally forgiven. Some of you are not sure that you're totally justified. Some of you worry that your sins or your complicity in evil throughout your life may come back at any moment to bite you. And some of you have been taught this by the church that God holds these things over you. Hear me. In Christ, you are free from punishment because Jesus took that punishment for you. It is finished. You are free because of what Jesus did on the cross. He accomplished it, and you and I live in his accomplishment. What are we seeing in that song oftentimes? For on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was what? Satisfied for every sin. Every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The guy who wrote that song, Stuart Townend, got it right. He didn't say only, here in the death of Christ, I look. Or here of the death of Christ, I know. Or just here of the death of Christ, I sing. What did he say? Here in the death of Christ, I live. Live in it. Free from condemnation. You are free from the wrath of God forever. You are totally free forever. Now, outside of Christ, you can't have this assurance And this should cause us to weep for the lost. That outside of Christ, this wrath remains. 
So again, the invitation of, of, of the early part of this gospel, come and see, come into Christ, find refuge in the finished work of Christ. Find refuge in this one, in Jesus, who I love how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, find refuge in Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. So Jesus is our fulfillment in that he bears God's wrath. And then finally, he becomes the new temple. He becomes the new temple. So where do we go now for forgiveness? Where do we go for access to God? Where do we go for communion with God? Not to a physical location anymore, but to one place, Jesus himself. Jesus is the new temple. Just like last week we heard, he is the new wine. And good news about Jesus is that he won't fleece you. He won't extort you. He won't exploit you. Jesus is your total, complete, once for all fulfillment. You don't need to bring in your own lowercase s sacrifices because he is your capital S sacrifice. He is your superior substitute. And he invites you to have life in him. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 9, this, that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh, not through your works, not through your own sacrifices. What is the way that has been opened up for us into the temple of Christ? The flesh of Christ. Jesus is the one who fulfills and Jesus is the one in whom we have fulfillment. Look at what Jesus did. Behold him, but don't stop there. Many of you know that I grew up in Central Florida, just down the road from Disney World, the happiest place on earth, they call it. If you can take out a second mortgage on your house and uh, you don't mind paying $47 for chicken fingers, uh, Disney promises to you happiness, joy, memories, magic, if you can pony up thousands of dollars. Don't you ever let anyone or any preacher or any church put anything or any price in your way, on your way to Christ. You don't have to pay anything. It's already paid. You don't have to atone for your own sins. They're already atoned for. All you have to do is make a beeline straight for Jesus because he's already making a beeline straight for you. He is zealous for his father's house. And he is zealous for his father's children. So this chapter ends in an interesting way. Just before John brings us back to the normal timeline, he ends with these verses, 23 through 25. That Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they were impressed. They saw his miracles. They had read the Gospel of John. They'd heard the stories. They saw his power. They saw the outside of the house. 
But verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and indeed needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So again, it's not that being impressed by Jesus is bad. It's just that it's incomplete. It's like standing in the parking lot and not coming into the sanctuary. But the front door is open. And an admission has been paid for you to come in. In Christ, you are saved from the wrath of God forever. In Christ, the old has gone. It has been put away and the new has come. And as you dwell in him, and as he dwells in you, Jesus will be about his father's business of making you into a temple set apart for him. Is he safe? <laughs> of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. So God, we thank you that your love and your zeal for your people was so red hot that you sent your son Jesus into this world to make the crooked straight, to make the wrong right, to deliver your wrath and to take it and satisfy it. King Jesus, move into this church more and more, and then to each one of our hearts more and more. Set us apart for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.